big start. Big. Hi. Hello, hello, and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. And I'm Matt Taibbi. How are you doing? I'm okay, you? You're not wearing your, I'm wearing my, proudly wearing my Useful Idiots merch. Yeah, I left my shirt in New York City, but I can ah. grab my, my bag later, but I need to order some more stuff. You should get get a gas mask and a, and a machine oh, gun yeah, and go, and go back that. in there. Yeah, and go get it. I was saying we should have useful idiots gas masks. I thought that's oh, what that, you were going to say. That's a good idea. Now that we're all we've all been home for ten million years, and um, you know, I'm I'm personally entering the having thoughts I don't want to share with people. Uh, uh, like what? Now you have to say that. Now I can't. So so. I'm, but on the outside, I, I I still have a mask of sanity. So it's good. Anyway, we have a lot of stuff to get to because in the real world, a lot of things happen this week. So I yeah. think we should probably just get right to it. And you have you have some good stuff to start with on the food for food groups with yeah. Democrats suck. Democrats suck. So uh, just reading from Democracy Now, uh, as New York races to keep up with the explosion of coronavirus cases, progressive critics say that the state budget agreed to by Governor Cuomo and the New York legislature last week will harm New Yorkers already suffering the most from the corona virus crisis, the $177 billion budget will slash the state's Medicaid program by $2.5 billion a year, including a $400 million cut in money for hospitals. Uh, and the budget also rolls back bail reform. So Cuomo is using this as, a, as a, an opportunity to do basically terrible things. But, you know, it's interesting, you know, his, the contrast that, is, that he strikes with Trump is just and the way he does these like daily updates, it's kind of the equivalent of Trump's tweets or the equivalent of Nancy Pelosi ripping up Trump's speech because um, his, you know, his get he's doing stuff as opposed to Trump. And I think the the bar is so low and Trump's kind of ineptitude or negligence. It's such a strong contrast just to have Cuomo like giving daily briefings and looking like he's doing stuff and he is doing stuff. The problem is some of it's bad. Right. Yeah. So exactly. he's taking advantage of this to push through bad things, but he looks decisive. My favorite part of all this is now is the, the latest craze of the last however many hours, which is that now Andrew Cuomo is actually the, the natural choice to end up being the, the Democratic nominee. Uh, I remember when after Biden swept Super Tuesday, I, I tweeted something to the effect of, well, there's still a lot of things that can happen between now and the convention and there are a lot of scenarios and everybody took that to mean I was still vainly placing my hopes in Sanders winning the, the primaries when actually what I was actually thinking about is they're going to suggest eight different people between right. now and the convention to be the eventual nominee because that's been the pattern throughout this entire election season. So Cuomo is the flavor of the minute. And right. it's not I, I'm, I'm just curious, how many how many more? people do you think are going to be proposed? Well, now that now? you say flavor, I feel like we should find 32, 32 flavors, <laughs> 32 flavors. Right. right. It's actually close to 32. the number. Yeah. Because the, there were 28 candidates, right. In the democratic yeah. field. So, so all we yeah. need is four more. Yeah, hey, can but, you run? I'll run. No, I, I don't want to run. You can run. That's, that's could a good you, technically though. Could you just start? Like could uh, anyone, how, what would we need? A lot of signatures? You need to be 35 and you need to be get, get signatures in the ballot and all those different places. Although I guess technically you don't need to do that because you can just be put forward at the convention after the first ballot. So it could be anybody. So, so how do we do that? Can you nominate well, me, Matt? I can. I'm not on the committee there. I, it was just, I think we'd have to get somebody in the DNC to do it. So do you have any friends? Probably not anymore. No, but you you probably have all their contact info from reporting on them. So what you should do is just like tell them that you're going to write about a scandal 
unless blackmail they them. yeah, yeah blackmail them on. into letting me run wouldn't that be great it would be great for your you know i, I just want to help you know yeah, give well, you some but, clout but th- think about it. trump trump ran for president as a publicity stunt to try to get himself a new deal on a reality show contract and look what happened you ended up in the yeah. white house who wants that so yeah, yeah I, Kate, I, I, katie halper wants that katie halper wants that uh republicans suck um i think in the interest of fairness um, we had to do, we have to do this. Uh, Dan, can we go to the videotape on this? So you get the point. Long lines of people supposedly social distancing, but they have to go to vote because Republicans is elected to hold this vote in Wisconsin. And now everybody's up in arms about this. We have to do this. We are, we are ethically and morally obligated to do this as a Republican suck segment because we did it when, there were, when the Democrats did it. Right. Uh, right. We, we showed basically the same kind of video from Illinois. Yeah. This reminds me of a, a passage from uh, Hunter Thompson's Generation of Swine with the, the introduction where he was sort of musing on the difference between heaven and hell. And he did a great long description of what hell was. And then he, he got into, he started to write about heaven and he talks about how heaven is a, a place where the swine will be sorted out at the gate and sent out like rats with huge welts and things all over their bodies. And he goes on and on like that. And then he realizes he's just talking about hell again. Uh, right. Like we were, but we were talking about heaven ends up being the line after three paragraphs. Yeah. And that I feel like it feels like this has been happening over and over again with the Republican suck segment. We start off doing something that's about Republicans and it always works back. And to then we have to, yeah, we have to give the Dems credit. <laughs> Right. So, yeah, we're talking. We started off talking about he- uh, heaven, but we ended up talking about hell again, or the Democrats. Heaven is against. a place on earth, as Belinda Carlisle said. That's right. It is. So that's what I got. I mean, look, people's feelings about this whole whether or not we should have elections, whether or not we should have primaries, it's completely a thousand percent partisan and based on whether or not they think the vote's going to go in their favor, which is just so disgusting and unbelievable. So. Um, yeah. But you have some thoughts on the voter suppression thing as well. Don't no, you? yeah. I mean, I just think that the, the way they're framing it as an issue of voter suppression is gross because how is it not a disenfranchisement issue when you're making people risk their lives? Like that is also an issue of voter suppression, immunosuppression. Didn't think of that until just now. Wow. And you're always about the um, puns. I'm yeah. always about the puns. Plays yeah. on words. Yeah. Plays on words. So, you know, the issue that this is, I mean, as you said, it's so opportunistic. And later on, we're going to see some Uncle Joe footage of him oh my um, God. Saying, yeah. talking about that. But it's so opportunistic. And the idea that somehow forcing um, people to have to choose between really like protecting their health and exercising the right to vote uh, is gross. And it's also, it's, I mean, I don't know legally if it does this, but couldn't you argue that it's um, disenfranchising people who are immunocompromised or are older because they have more barriers now? And and legally, you don't have to intend that. If it's the result, it's discrimination. Right. I I have no idea how that would come into play because we're talking about an emergency situation. So, but yeah, it's clearly discriminatory, right? I mean, if you're you're worried about getting sick or you're more worried about getting sick than somebody else and or you're over 50 and and right. you're more likely to get the disease exactly. and all that stuff comes so into play. So that election was illegitimate. Republicans and Democrats is really moving and beautiful. It's very bipartisan, blood on their hands. And I'm going to declare that election all the primaries so far that happened post corona illegitimate. Wow. There you go. You're and trying to go viral, Katie. I can see what you're viral, viral. Yeah. Viral. Uh, And that's the platform I'm going to run on when I run for president. Illegitimate. 
primary elections must be overturned. That's a that's a snappy bumper sticker right there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Excellent. So, okay. Once again, we did re- Republicans suck, and it turned out to be Democrats suck. So we're sorry about that. If they want us to stop doing that, then Democrats have to spe- suck so much as, as and almost as much as uh, right as Republicans. I so mean, for- just 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 an example. I, I I wanted to do something about the bailout, but they all voted for it. So, you know, what can we do? So, for isn't that weird? We have a story that's like. Well, it's just weird. Let's just go to the videotape. I don't think I need to introduce it any more than it's already set up in the video. So how do you hold a church wedding if much of the country is under stay-at-home order? So your friends and family can't be there. Well, this couple in Michigan came up with something interesting to pull off their big day. They're getting married Saturday. The groom didn't want his bride to walk down the aisle in this empty church, so he had a local packing company <laughs> make cardboard cutouts to replace family and friends who can't attend. The company, <clears throat> pardon me, the company donated its work. The groom said he reminded him, you know what? There could be a silver lining to this situation. It's been great to see that, you know, you have the, the scary news, but then you're also getting some amazing news of some people that are just coming out of the woodwork to do really creative things to help out. Those cardboard cutouts, not to get this back to the shining again, but was it the, were those the twins who were in the hallway uh, in the in the scary moment of the shining? As someone who clearly has not seen that movie and I'm too ashamed, it'll be too triggering for me to watch it now that I was shamed in front of the entire world. Uh, I think I think we got to call up that picture at some point. But um, yeah, yeah, I don't know how you feel about that. It's so sad. Why don't they just postpone the wedding like the primaries as go the primaries? So should go the weddings. That's also going to be part of my platform. Would you rather get married in front of cardboard people or in front of no one except for Jesus? Because it's in a church. So I look, I, I think it wouldn't. I think it was that's cute and it's interesting. And they got on television. So why not? Right. I like the way that's the example of how the silver lining, like there's so much scary news, but the good news is that their cardboard company is willing to donate figures to weddings. The other thing is I thought the the anchor there was going to die of coronavirus during the broadcast. I know. Yeah. I thought I was like, maybe he's just um, verklempt, you know, I thought he was moved. Right. I thought he was being slowly starved of oxygen as the, you know, uh, hemoglobin throughout his blood supply was poisoned. But you uh, see the lung as half empty (laughs) and I see the lungs as half full (laughs) or maybe the other way around. The other way around. I see it as more empty of fluid. Right. Or whatever. We're now we're drifting into bad karma jokes. Yeah. uh, yeah, We we didn't just make that joke. We're not laughing about this because we don't want to get the disease. Well, we have to. Yes. You have to laugh and say, of cry sometimes but anyway. right that's true isn't that terrible there was a whole like there was a, a panoply if you will of terrible things to choose from and it, they were so bad that I, I just didn't want to go there so i just I, I just found an image that was really funny uh and wanted to do that instead so dan can we go to the videotape this is just ant bodies ant bodies <laughs> those are all ants they're ants. They built it. They built a bridge of themselves to get to this, like a wasp's nest, to eat it. I guess. But check out the industriousness. You see, this is way more impressive than the cardboard cutouts. Like this is the example. Look at that. I could look at this lining. video all day long. I did look at this video That's all day so long. That's so disgusting. That is really <laughs> disgusting. Has this ever happened before? I mean, is I this? I, I'm sure what it is has. it? Necessity is the mother of invention. Is this a corona-induced industriousness? It's amazing, whatever Don't it is. You, like, if, if, think about the logistics of it. How did they do it? That they would have had to drop two separate chains of ants and had them link by swinging. I think that's the only way I could think to do it. Right? I just see real parallels between that and the cardboard thing. 
Right. Necessity is the mother of invention. Absolutely. Right? Although, yeah, yeah. I don't know I mean, whether that was in coronavirus induced. I think they just wanted to get, get at that food. They're but. just, are they always that resourceful though? I feel like, I feel like the ants are like, there's know that something's going on. They're like, anything is possible. Who, what the hell is going on? It's Armageddon and we just got to do things in a new way. So we're going to make it an ant chain. I just think ants are really industrious and clever, and that's just right. like the Grand Coulee Dam of just ant body bridges. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's so those amazing... are a thing, ant body bridges. Like, I that's guess a so. thing. I'm going to assume so. Why not? I mean, we're all ignorant surfers of the internet, and I guess to some people that would be terrible, right? What about a necklace? Oh, a necklace would be a good. Uh, but would you want to wear that? No, that would be terrible. See, right, I think what be... we should say is ant necklaces. Isn't that terrible? Right. And Even though they haven't happened, but yeah, I don't, that is pretty, that's a horrific image. I would say. Is it? Yeah, I think it probably is. It's a little, it's inspiring and horrific at the same time. It's almost like the holo, it's like an a insectile Holocaust. Yeah. Because it's so, it's so like, I can't believe I'm saying this, this may have to go on the editing floor, but I did lose relatives in the Holocaust. So maybe I have license. It's like, it's the application of technology. That's true. Yes, it's a very it's a very like uh, organized, coordinated attempt to um, exterminate this wasp. Yeah. So you're calling ants Nazis now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Excellent. Ant Nazis. All right. So what do we have for uh, stories to talk about this week? There was a lot, but I think something that's kind of in our wheelhouse uh, for this show is the reaction to the Joe Rogan thing. Um, yeah, which was just it was so over the top. It was it was really entertaining. But I think we should probably start with the actual videotape, yeah. right? The, the video clip. So Dan, if you can see, this is Joe Rogan talking with uh, Eric Weinstein. I think he was from uh, Teal Capital. He's this so is the real issue with the Democratic Party. They've essentially made us all morons. Yeah, with this Joe Biden thing, they really have. <laughs> they made imagine? us all morons. Who do we need? I mean. Can, uh, I can't vote for that guy. I can't vote for him. I can't vote for him. I can't vote for Trump. I'd rather vote for Trump than him. I don't think he could handle anything. I mean, you're relying entirely on his cabinet. Like, if you want to talk about a, an individual leader that can communicate, he can't do that. And, and we don't even know what the fuck he's going to be like after a year in office. It's a little aside in a piece of his interviews, which are, of course, of enormous length anyway, and, and he does them, so many of them. So he's got... Oh, gazillions of hours of stuff and he makes an offhand comment about how you know he likes trump better than than biden um and instantly like the whole hashtag resistance twitter world like was in complete you know apoplectic mode right, about this arms, yeah yeah i mean we saw if we could take a look at this uh nira tandon who one of our one of our favorites obviously Friend she of the show immediately jumped all over this uh, because now it's immediately it's bernie's fault so if we could see uh, you know nira tandon did this tweet suckers every time if you think joe rogan a racist was going to vote for bernie over trump in general i have a cure for covid19 you can buy <laughs> Dunk. Uh, you all sold out people of color and trans people for nothing and folks will remember first of all don't hide behind like don't weaponize these these two groups of people just because it's convenient. You know what I mean? It's like, I know I'm just going to throw them in there. Trans people and people of color and who's guilt. That's so incoherent too, because who's, who is she mad at? Bernie supporters? I guess to be fair, it's, she's not even going after Bernie this time. It's his supporters. 
Well, yeah, but there were there were lots of other tweets that, that oh, said the I same thing that Bernie has to renounce. He has to make a statement. Like, right. you really, you got to make a statement because Joe Rogan said something in a show. Uh, and and frankly, this this and people have made this point. This proves the 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 yeah. point, right? Like, uh, not only does it prove the fact that you know Bernie was so uniquely suited to come to get some of those independent voters, voters. Yeah. but this is precisely why people who people who are independents can't stand voting for this brand of Democrat because there are a gazillion rules and prohibitions and taboos that they, it's just exhausting to try to follow all of it. Like the, the instant anybody says anything, there are just these endless chains of people who want you to renounce this person for saying that thing and, and cancel that person forever. And I, I just, it, it shows like a total inability to balance this idea that we can disagree with people about some things and uh, agree with them about others. And that's totally normal. Like who cares? Right. There was a great, yes. And there was a great tweet by um, someone named Katie Halper about this, <laughs> which was only libs by which I mean like centrists see electability as a liability, mm-hmm. which is right. what they've been saying about Sanders. It's like, the ability to appeal to people who would otherwise vote for Trump is seen as, which is literally part of the definition or part of the part of being electable because everyone competes for voters. It's this moralistic, totally out of touch and ironically purity politics where God forbid people are encouraged to vote. And what I never understand about this is like, if you want to defeat Trump, you can still hate these people. It's up to you if you want to hate people who would maybe vote for Trump and then would vote for Bernie. But do you want them to vote for Trump or vote for the person running against him? Right. Yeah. No, that's, you're, you're absolutely right. They're, A, they're flipping their own argument about purity yes, on its head yeah. because this, this is exactly the opposite of the thinking that we all heard from these right. folks in the, in the 90s when, yeah. when we were told, um, oh, you know, you don't want to vote for, you know, the Omnibus Anti-Terrorism Act of 1996 or whatever it is, or, the, you know, you all, you all have purity politics. You can't get behind the crime bill, so you're going to go run to some other party. Get, you know, grow up, get over it, you know, like, but balance competing ideas in your head at the same time. Think think of the overall issue. Uh, now they're telling us exactly the opposite. They, yeah. they, 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 they want this whole slate of things. The other thing I can't stand, there, there was, there, you know, there's a group of people who, are popping up kind of on the other side who felt it necessary to do all this virtue signaling. Like even if Joe Rogan is a, is a racist and a Nazi, that doesn't mean that Bernie Sanders has to say something like they, they felt that they, they took this story about people flipping out about Joe Rogan as an opportunity to flip out about Joe Rogan and tell everybody how exactly okay, how they yeah. feel, which is just so stupid. Like, you know, obviously I'm biased. I, I, I like Joe, show. I've been on his show and, and, uh, and I think one of the things that's interesting about his his whole approach to everything is that he goes out of his way to interview people who he disagrees with, uh, who he doesn't like. And yes, he, he he makes some choices that make people think that maybe his leanings are more one direction or the other. But the whole premise of his program is let's get the widest possible, right. uh, you know, representative spe- yeah, yeah. Like spectrum, you know, so that we can at least acquaint ourselves with these ideas. Right. And this is exactly what these folks don't want to do, which is just infuriating. How was it when you were on his show? You've done it twice? Yeah. What's it it's like? It's great. 
Yeah, it's great. I mean, you know, it, it's it's a different atmosphere. You know, he comes from that ultimate ultimate fighter world, and he's right. you know he's he's uh, but he, he's he's great. He's a comedian. He's funny, and it's it's totally mellow. And he he you know he wants to talk about whatever you want to talk about, which is kind of what the spirit of interview shows used to be a long time ago. Like they they used to be probing without being. Um, you know, like the the basic format of news, not to not to deviate too much about this, but the 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 modern format of news interviews is either a complete whitewash. You're never going to be confronted with anything negative, right. kind of a show like which is very common on MSNBC, MSNBC. for instance, right? You you and Fox for that unless matter, unless it's right? Bernie, in which case unless it's Bernie, right? Or or there's this thing where somebody comes on who holds a different point of view and the interviewer feels like if I don't get in a gotcha on this person and really show that person up, then I'm going to get decimated on Twitter. So I have to, I have to, you know, put that person in a very difficult place and, and make it, make it ugly for them. But the, that's not what interview shows are really for. Like they're for, yeah, you can have an exchange of ideas and, and challenge somebody on whether or not you think that they're wrong about things. But uh, having a level of congeniality about interviews is is uh, and, and being able to explore different issues at the same time is actually a strength of the process. It's not right. it's not a weakness. You know, I don't know yeah. how you feel about that. I, I feel pretty strongly about that. Did Bernie drop out, by the way? Did he just now? Yes. I can't believe it. So we're just seeing uh, alerts and a couple places are reporting there's going to be a announcement pretty soon from the campaign it sounds like that bernie is suspending the campaign wow okay i can't believe i'm not i'm actually surprised i'm not crying well it's been over for a while hasn't it can he just nominate himself i'll give up you know what i'll give up my nomination (laughs) and i'll nominate can you just blackmail the dnc people and instead of asking them for me just make it for bernie yeah i don't think i have that much uh i don't have that much pull in my own house biden is gonna lose right exactly yeah well you can practice with your kids and then see i mean i I think it's sad let's talk about what the meaning of this for bernie is i think he had to drop out at this point um there's an argument that he could have stayed in and tried to influence the ticket but he's not gonna the votes aren't are no longer meaningful during this crisis because there's no real campaigning that's going on um the numbers in terms of how many people are voting uh, in each state no longer really tell us anything about anything because people are either voting or not voting for a variety of reasons that have nothing to do with politics right and and the chance that he was actually going to have you know, a comeback turned out to be pretty low, especially after the last few weeks, don't you think? Yeah, I'm pretty, I, as people know, I'm a big Bernie fan and I, it's hard for me to get mad at him, but I'm really, really mad at him right now for that debate. Because he wasn't more aggressive? Yeah. I'm really mad. Like you said this during one episode and it kind of opened up my eyes and you were like, he has to, when you wrote that piece about how he has to scale up in a realistic way, not just make his shack bigger, like in the movie, The Jerk. Right. And you were like, if he's not going to do that, it's not fair. He was raising money mm-hmm. and he was getting people to do stuff, to volunteer, and he was mobilizing people. And he needed to fucking scale up in the way you were saying. He needed to have you on this team, Matt. No, but it's just like, I finally got the, and then I was really mad at him during that debate because I don't care if he likes Joe Biden. Like he needed to get over that. 
Yeah, he did. And, but I think that speaks to part of Bernie's character. Like he, there's a, a part of him that, he he lacks a certain kind of personal competitiveness that is probably necessary in this kind of politics. Like he, he, he did almost win and he did, he did it in a very, very unusual way, which was by building a movement. You know, he was, he was basically like a grateful dead tour of politicians. He just was building this thing where it was going from state to state and getting all this enthusiasm. People were coming out, but part of electoral politics in America is beating the other person. And I think he he has a limited appetite for for that kind of mindset. And that, Which is, that yeah, I mean, he was very aggressive for him in that debate. It just wasn't enough. It's like you always want a reluctant administrator. You never want an administrator who wants to be one because those people tend to be assholes. I think you do need to argue. You have to argue, though, that there's in politics, you do need a killer instinct because you you need to be able to do whatever it takes to pull out all the steps to get something passed, to get something done, to, to get more of what you want in a bill than the other side gets. I mean, it's it's there's a lot of war in politics and Bernie, Bernie, I think is very competitive in terms of showing people that this is what the people actually want. I mean, a lot, a lot of what his career has been about has been proving people wrong that, you know, the policies that the sort of neoliberal establishment espouses that those aren't actually popular. Right. And, but, and, and that he was, that the policies that he pushes actually have a lot of organic support. But I don't know. There's just something in the end that he just he just wasn't able to to go after his opponent in the, same, what, in the way. What you kills would me wish. is that yeah. What kills me is that it, he came so close. Like I feel like he could have won, and that's what sucks. That's like what's really painful. Like if it, if he had never had any chance, this wouldn't have been so bad. But right, if Joe Biden had been Hillary Clinton, I think because he doesn't like Hillary Clinton. No. Not because she's a woman, not because she's a woman. He just there's a lot of things that, are, as Obama said, you're likable enough. So whatever. But if he had been running against someone he didn't like personally, do you think he would have been able to? Yeah, if the candidate had been somebody like Rahm Emanuel, you know, I think he Ber- Bernie has a, has differing levels of uh, contempt for the Democratic Party establishment, and I think there's there are some people in the party that he feels are. Um, you know, not just misguided, but corrupt in a way. And so he's more aggressive towards those folks. But Biden is a person that he just thinks, he thinks of as a person he knew when he, when he came into the, into Congress, who was kind of nice to him. So that's, that's we could talk to up. Matt about this too. I mean, you know, we're our, our, the yeah. guests we have coming up. So, yeah. And also, are we allowed to, I mean, let's just go here. Like Biden, you think Bi- Biden would be a better president a less destructive president than Trump? Yeah, I'm totally abstaining from that question. Are you kidding? Well, let's say I think he is, right? Less okay. the lesser of two evils. What do I do now? I can't criticize Biden. I mean, not to be like, as goes Katie Help or so goes the election, but what can people do now? Like push him to the left, try to push him to the left? He's going to, like, I, I don't know. Anything that's now critical of Biden is now going to be framed as helping Trump. Wow, Katie, you look crestfallen. I mean, I, I was moment, I was I was depressed after Super Tuesday because I thought, I thought actually, I, I, I you know, I, I was tricked into thinking that this was actually going to happen for a few minutes there, and yeah. things actually things were lining up in a way that 
made it look like he had a really good chance of at least ending up with the most delegates heading into the convention. And then all of a sudden that series of moves just right before Super Tuesday completely changed the picture. But, you know, you, you can make the argument that, that look, he, lo he lost, right? This is really going to be more on the on Democratic voters than on Bernie. I mean, they, you know, back in 2016, if you look at the, the divisions between the party, yeah, he was close, but not that close. And ultimately, those divisions kind of held this time around, and he, he didn't make up the gains in, in, the, in, in the intervening four years. So, I mean, it's the moderate consolidation thing, right, that mostly did him in. Yeah. You mean getting rid of the, the, the Amy and Pete and all that? Yeah. If Biden loses, that's on them. Yeah, I mean, Biden is objectively a, a, a terrible candidate. And, you know, and when I say I'm punting on the question of who's going to be a better president or not, that's what I'm talking about. Like, it's just really hard to argue that either one of them is, is a good president. So rather than, rather than talking right. about, uh, you know, I, I think at this point, all you can really do is sit back and observe the insanity because this is going to be a crazy like historically crazy and bitter and vituperative general election race. So, but uh, yeah, very sad. And they're going to try to, I'm just kind of mobilizing already because they're going to try to blame whatever happens with Biden on Sanders supporters. Oh, of course. Um, and we had, we were the ones pushing for a guy who's good. And I, 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 I think that he had a better chance. Like, I'm not sure he would have beat Trump, but I'm sure he had a better chance than Biden. Because as we see more of Biden and more of his cognitive, I'm trying not to be ableist, but. Cognitive slide, let's put it yeah, that way. Yeah, inability to really speak in coherent full sentences. It's just going to get worse. So, uh, Katie, any parting thoughts on, on uh, this unexpected news about Bernie? I'll go first on this. Yeah. Bernie, with his politics, came closer to actually winning the nomination than anybody of his ilk has ever come before. I mean, what he, re what he accomplished, both in this race and in the last race, was really significant and could and should be a building block for somebody to figure out a better way to get there next time. And, and you really couldn't say that about uh, somebody like... Dennis Kucinich, who had the same friend of show, but yeah, right, a similar kind of approach, similar politics, and did some great viable. things, and, and and introduced ideas that later became important. But the political solution, right, in terms of in terms of getting lots and lots of people behind it, uh, Bernie did better at that than anybody uh, of his type ever had, and I, th I think that's going to end up being meaningful. It's going to have a huge impact on policy. It's and it's going to, especially during this crisis we're seeing that a lot of his ideas are going to have more traction than ever. There were some pretty heated internal debates, I think, in, in Bernie world about how to go about certain things. And I, I think, um, I think a lot of that's going to come out. So. I just want to, yeah. And I want to thank, I want to give props to David Sirota and Brianna Joy Gray. I do mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I think they had good instincts and they called the shit out that needed to be called out. Tough. Well, you know, it's a historic moment. Uh, I think Bernie, Bernie, has done a lot of great things and he's, he's going to continue to have an impact on policy and on the thinking of, of people. And especially, you know, if you went out to his events, it's pretty clear that the next generation of people who are going to be Democrats, you know, the, the next group of older voters who are Democrats, they're going to have grown up being Sanders supporters. You know, there just aren't a lot of young people who are 
who are who are at Biden or Pete Buttigieg events. So overwhelmingly, I think the next generation is going to belong to people who grew up in this paradigm. So I, th- I think that's that's all a good thing. Yeah. This is literally just happening right now, and we got we got a perfect guest for this. We do. Yeah, I we mean, have uh, Matt, Matt Stoller coming on uh, in a little bit, so we can talk a little bit about some of the legacy of Bernie. And uh, He's not very happy with Bernie, yeah. So we'll talk about more of this as the rest of the show yeah. progresses. Let's just get to a few things quickly while we, while we still still have some time. I think we should just start with this while we're talking about Biden and what a great candidate he's going to be. Just one more clip. This is going to become a, a bit of a regular feature. Dan, if you could go to the videotape on Golden Leg Hairs. No, it shouldn't creep in your mind. Look, we've been through hell before. We had an election in the middle of the Civil War. We had an election in the middle of pandemic flu back in the turn of the century. We had an election at every major crisis. We can take care of our health and our democracy. The idea of postponing an election is not possible. It should not happen. The democracy has to continue to function. We have to lead. Do you think you won in Wisconsin tonight? Ordinarily, I'd be hitting you over the head with all these exit polls and cross tabs and things that I know about people all the way down to what they like for lunch. Uh, We're not going to have anything until Monday. What's your gut? No, we're not. Well, my gut uh, is that we shouldn't have had the election in the first place. Uh, the in-person election. It should have been all mail ballots in. Uh, it should have been moved in the way that five other states have done it. It's uh, the idea didn't have enough poll workers in what uh, over a hundred and some polling places uh, in Milwaukee. Uh, and I, but that this was all about uh, Republican legislature pushing really, really hard to maintain and make sure they had an election because uh, I think they know that uh, low turnout affects. Uh, affects their interest. So that's our president. That's our nominee. A guy who contradicts himself. Like within two seconds. I mean, that's Trumpian, you know? Yeah. That, that, yeah. yeah that, that's a that's a that's a Trump type of thing to do. Uh, that's, although, why, but, that's why it was so hard to play by who said it, Biden or Trump. I mean, the, the character of it is a little different because with Trump, there's always like some self-serving element. Like I didn't, you know, I was awesome over here and I'm awesome in, in this way. Right. But this is just taking two positions at the same time uh, simultaneously and expecting to be taken seriously in both both areas. So I don't know. It's just ridiculous. And I yeah. can't tell I can't tell whether it's because he doesn't know that that's contradictory right, or, it's, right. or whether it's just sort of perfectly instinctive. Disingenuous of, or, yeah. or yeah, it's disingenuous or actually discombobulated. How many golden leg hairs way up is that one for you? Eleven. That's 11. That's a good one. Yeah, I'd give that an eight at least because that's 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 about as bad as that kind of thing gets. Katie, you look, you, I think you need to do a line or something like that. You look, you look I shattered, crestfallen. I mean, but you knew this was over, didn't you know? I mean, you, you nah, I kind of thought any good thing could happen. And I here's the thing I really think I feel like people accepted it was a self fulfilling prophecy to some extent. Like we've spent, you know, four years with the with right-wing assholes, by which I mean right-wing Dems, saying he just couldn't win and and replacing what was possible, like pretending what they wanted was what the reality was. So people saying like, it just couldn't happen, he can't win, as opposed to, I just don't want it to happen, I just don't want him to win. But then this, I think what happened was after he won those caucuses and then lost stuff after, his supporters and the left is like, I think they didn't know how to, go from his winning to his losing. And I do think that like people needed to 
And I don't think I'm saying that people need to be delusional, but I feel like if people had walked around with the possibility of him not, not quitting, it could have made a difference. Like, I do feel like there's this feedback loop. I just feel like viability and electability are so much, not in the eye of the beholder, but in the mouth of the beholder or whatever. It's all about how it's presented and how it's framed. And who the fuck knows what would have happened? I mean, Joe Biden could peel over any moment. I, I would have thought that way, except that he just performed so badly, even compared to his last run in some really key states when he really needed to do well. And yeah, well, we, we have someone we're going to be uh, who, who's a perfect person to ask about it. who We're yeah. going to talk to right now, Matt yeah. Stoller, who, who uh, in addition to having once worked for Bernie, is also uh, suddenly arousing the indignation of basically everybody on the Internet right now, which is naturally a reason why we wanted to have him on. And, yeah and subtly endorse him. So, so let's, let's go to that conversation now. So excited to have on Matt. So excited. So, so excited to have on guy I've known for a while, Matt Stoller, who is the author of Goliath, the hundred year war between monopoly power and democracy. Also um, a very, uh, a fellow at the Open Markets Institute, previously was a senior policy advisor and budget analyst to the Senate Budget Committee. He also worked in the U.S. House of Representatives on financial services policy, including Dodd-Frank, the Federal Reserve, and the foreclosure crisis. He has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the New Republic, Vice, and Salon. He lives in Washington, D.C. And he is does not hold back with the criticism of Bernie and Warren. So... And other people. And other people. Yeah, sorry. That's, that's the most Everyone is perfect thing. except those two. Just those no, two. I'm <laughs> sorry. I shouldn't have said that. Like you are relent, you're a relentless critic in a good way of everyone. Um, what makes you stand out, though, is that you, as someone who's who's been supportive of both of them, you're you took took off well, the gloves. Let me let me um, just to correct my bio because that you read it from the book jacket. I'm actually at a new group called the American Economic Liberties Project. It's all just doesn't really all matter. Right. I was a fellow. Now. I'm now the director of research. It's it's all bullshit titles, but it's a new group. We focus on private power. So basically monopolies, private equity, stuff like that. And we want to center the theme that of your book. That is the theme of my book. My, yeah. For money. Sorry. The book is fun. I'm just going to make a pitch. It's a fun book. Yeah, uh, I wrote it because it's about all the money and power in the world. And it turns out that that's interesting. And the only reason that it's considered boring is because powerful people want it to be boring. So nobody pays attention to it, but it's actually super interesting. So my book is all about like the protests and fights and arguments in boardrooms and you know, it, it has venom hearing. for all the right people yeah. too. Uh, having lived in Russia in the in the '90s, there was a group of people what the Western uh, reporters and analysts all loved, and we called them the energetic young reformers. Um, and it was assumed because they were young, and a lot of them spoke English and were you know had like had good taste in movies that they were like good people, but they actually turned out to be total monsters. Uh, and, <laughs> That's kind of like your Watergate babies. I feel like they're the right. energetic, energetic young reformers of recent American history. No, yeah. they were totally like that. They were like cool. Uh, they were like they were like with it. Um, they Long had, hair, yeah. Yeah, they were. They had, you know, they were not like racist or not quite as racist or like they were good to you know they they cared about all these different social aspects. They right. listened to rock and roll, and they were the forerunners to like private equity. They were just or just actual, just did private equity. They're just fucking right. monsters. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Like yeah. Michael Milken in there. I have a quote from him. This is like my favorite quote in the, in the book was um, like he was at Berkeley in like 1968 or 69, like the center play, you know, flower children and all that crap. 
And the, my favorite quote from him is in 1970 or 71, he's like, unlike some of my like compatriots from Berkeley, like I've chosen to make Wall Street like my vehicle for social change. Something amazing. And there are all these like flower power quotes from these guys. It's hilarious. I mean, I a mean, lot of the Wall Street guys talk like that, though, even to oh, the their yeah. counterculture, like it's totally the counterculture was like a totalitarian movement. It just right. was cool. Right. Um, we hadn't recognized that. And, um, you know, that people got really confused by the hippies because they didn't want to, you know, because they didn't like the war. I mean, it was legitimate. It was the Vietnam War was terrible. Right. But like underneath their actual anti-war claims and a lot of people were anti-war, not just the hippies. So it was, it was like a broader dynamic. But a lot of the people that sort of seized that mantle were actually kind of similar to the, um, some of the other intellectual trends at that period with like, like the, um, the cultural revolution in China or like a bunch of other things that were going on around in the late sixties. And that's why the debates that happened in the 1970s, when these people came of age, like they actually moved us in, in these really toxic directions. And a lot of that was centered, not all of it, but a lot of it was centered on the left. And I don't think the left has come to terms with what we did. Um, and how we 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 think about the world and, that, well, no, and how destructive that can be. Isn't that basically one of the central questions of this whole schism that's going on in the Democratic Party and went on in, in this election cycle and the last election cycle? Are these sort of two competing visions of what progressivism is and the kind of mainstream Democrats are still in that Watergate babies place where they're adopting the sort of neoliberal free market Here's what I'm confused about. So this is what confused me about the primary. So, yeah. uh, so really the, the way to understand, at least the way I understand like what happened to the Democrats and to the left, so I don't distinguish necessarily the two of them, is that in the 1970s, American kind of political, thinking about American political power meant thinking about how we do business. Not that business was bad or good, just that how you do it is how you do social justice, right? So... Yeah. A lot of a lot of the uh, energy was organized around, you know, ensuring that you had small business, that you had financing mechanisms for small business, that you protected markets, that you protected kind of industrial ecosystems. And that was kind of a big moral part of politics. And what happened in the 1970s is the, the kind of John Kenneth Galbraith influenced groups. They were effectively the Nader consumer rights movement that, that came out of the 1960s and then became very influential in the 1970s. They transformed our conception of who we are from citizens and business people and workers and producers to consumers. And they said, it doesn't actually matter how you do business. That's irrelevant. All business people are kind of are scum. Um, what matters is whether you have this kind of elite group that's doing consumer-oriented uh, regulation. And then if you have problems, things like inequality, don't care about the productive capacity of the country, don't care about monopolies or finance, all that stuff is irrelevant. Just do some tax and transfers on, uh, for, for tax policy, right? So that's why today, you know, what you see is uh, like the only arguments about during these bailouts were like, oh, the Democrats want to spend more money on hospitals and, um, and, and states and cities. Unemployment and insurance. Unemployment insurance. They don't actually think about you know, the financing models for hospitals, like whether that money's actually going to treatment and care or whether it's going to administrators, like there's no actual understanding of the, the institutional mechanisms in society. And the reason I said I was confused, Matt, about 
whether you do see a schism is because I'm not sure that the left showed that they actually have any understanding of the, of the details of American commerce. So when I looked at, I'm more interested in the right because the right is actually, they had a lot less, um, you have Marco Rubio, who has really rethought a lot of his premises. I mean, this is your standard, prior to 2016, he's your standard like robotic conservative movement hack, like raised, it. that's what I thought about him. I don't think you know that anymore, but it was like the guy was raised in like from a, from a fetus to be the perfect, you know, conservative Republican Bush style candidate saying whatever the consultants wanted. And then in 2016, he gets destroyed by Trump and he goes off on this intellectual sort of spirit quest um, and starts to think about China and starts to think, actually starts thinking and does, you know, and there's a group of them that, that I think Democrats just despise. This, like, is your, this is your piece you have out right now that talks yeah, about yeah. this. Right? So yeah. this is like Tucker Carlson. This is, um, you know, Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley, uh, and, and, and then Robert Lighthizer, who's a, the trade guy, Peter Navarro. This, these are guys that are thinking about China and production. There's a, there's a woman named uh, Rachel Bovard who thinks about technology. And they're really trying to understand, like, what went wrong? Because they, they're like, something went wrong in the Bush era. Right. And they were all Bush supporters. And then now they're like, OK, something went really wrong. And they've come out of that really rethinking a lot of their principles. And they've kind of created this thought collective where they see the world in the same way. And they're actually thinking about productive capacity. So many of them were early on on the coronavirus because they were thinking about China. They were paying attention to China. And then, you know, all of a sudden you got Marco Rubio, who becomes a center, a center central player in structuring the bailout with the small business lending program, which is a very important part of the program. Meanwhile, on the Democratic side, right? And on the left and the center. Okay. So this is both sides, or let's just take the left. This is Warren and Bernie. Warren and Bernie, two very popular figures in the Democratic Party. Both of them have the ability to raise huge amounts of money and small dollar donations. Both of them are very respected and organized. They, they both have, in different ways, policy chops. They both ran for president. And yet, they both came out of the same dis dissatisfaction. The, the, the bailouts, the uh, offshoring in China, all that, so they both understand that. Yet faced with this incredible moment of potential re readjustment in our, how we, we organize our political economy, and faced with a, a lot of the dynamics that are similar to what they saw in 2008, not entirely the same, but similar in terms of the bailouts, the Federal Reserve, all these things, they exerted zero policy leverage, none, zero, nothing. So the I look at that and I'm like, that is a catastrophic failure. Why did that happen? And I yeah. think the first thing you have to do is you have to say that's a failure. And that's where I come at this. And now I'm trying to figure out why. And that mostly what I'm also dealing with is just people that are like, you suck. Bernie was the best. Or you suck. What could Warren do? Right. And like, that's annoying. We have well, to get beyond the, that. Yeah. So can you let's talk about that and your criticisms of 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 Warren and Bernie. And by the way, I saw you on Jimmy, the Jimmy Dore show and chuckled at two things in particular. You said that. um Bernie Sanders doesn't know how to talk about anything that didn't happen in 1985 and or wasn't a thing in 1985. And you said Warren, instead of running, um, what was it, to periodically murder bankers, ran her campaign, was about uh, having golden a retriever. golden retriever. Um, yeah. Oh, man. She should have run on periodically murdering bankers instead of on having a golden retriever. Yeah. And Sanders is lazy. And if something wasn't a problem in 1985, then he doesn't know how to talk about it. 
So how do those things apply? How do they manifest in, in what happened with the bailout? And also, I mean, we are now doing this interview upon finding out that Bernie Sanders dropped out. Could he, could it have been different? Like, is there a parallel between their response to the bailouts and, and, and how they ran their primaries? You know, I don't, I think just to finish, sorry, a lot of people who are pushing back on you are like, well, what options did they have? So yeah, were, were there, were, was, what could he ever have won and could he ever have done something differently with the bailouts? So I, I divide that into sort of two, two different questions. Yeah. Okay. So, so one of them is that's, by the way, if you don't have an answer, just always say, I divide that into two yeah. different questions. Right. Um, <laughs> you sound good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, there is, there's the, there's the question of, of sort of tactics as the bailout was kind of being discussed. And I think you can have a, like a pretty a good argument about whether they could have done something different. And I think it wasn't just them. You saw a total system failure. You didn't see any progressive nonprofits really noticing the corporate bailouts. I mean, my organization, American Economic Liberties Project, we were basically the only ones saying, this is a real catastrophe. Don't vote for this bill. Um, you know, there were, there were 10 days or two weeks where Democrats well, everybody knew that this was coming, so they could have organized. Then, the, you know, at the last minute, they might have had some pressure, maybe not. But, like, what was really going on here is that Schumer and Warren and Bernie were a team. And they were all whipping for this bailout so that they could also get, presumably get money to hospitals and get money to states and a couple of other things. And you just kind of question whether that was the right strategy, whether being on Team Schumer was the right strategy, and or whether they could have gotten something else if they hadn't been on Team Schumer. And then going forward, if being kind of if that had failed, if having voted no uh, would have given them sort of moral credibility later or political credibility to adjust or or oppose, um, or shifted those the are those in window. Right. Those are strategic questions. And my view is that, that depending on how I think this bailout is going to be a fiasco and is going to shift a lot of power and wealth upward. Um, so if that is the case, I think these, they're going to look really bad for, for their, their strategy or tactics of going on Team Schumer. Um, I think the alternative, and this is the same thing that happened in, during TARP, was, you know, oh, what could they have done? You know, you, you, you guys know this. It's like every single time you defer to power, it's like, oh, they didn't have a choice. You know, oh, there was, you know, they would have had to do like, it would have been hard. People would have yelled at them, any number of, of sort of excuses. But that's what happened, right? They chose not to, not to put any limits on corporate power. It, Warren came out with eight demands on here's how to make sure there's no strings attached and we won't go vote for anything that doesn't have some of these. And then she voted for it and got zero out of eight. They didn't get anything for like mail and voting, you know, so it's like now elections are kind of optional, I guess. Like it was just like, my view is that a lot of it was just badly done, badly strategically and tactically done. But I think there's a plausible argument against that. I think that that's fair to say, well, what could they have done? You know, I was kind of mad during when I was talking to Jimmy Dore because I was like, I, I, I was so... I felt really angry that none of the progressive nonprofits were where we were as, as well. And like none of the movement groups were there, like all justice Democrats, all the, none of them. I mean, the PCCC came out with a statement. There were some people that were writing, but it's like, it was clear. It's just evident that they did not understand. They just didn't understand corporate power. They couldn't tell you the difference between a private equity fund and a mutual fund. Or and it's venture, not or venture, capital. venture capital or anything. It's like, it's like, that's not, that means you're not serious. It just means you're not serious about power. If you can't, these are the people that control the world, right? And if you don't even bother to learn their language, 
And this language is annoying to learn, but it's not impossible. And if you don't bother to learn the language of power and money, then you're irrelevant, right? And you're just irrelevant. And they have chosen to be irrelevant. And they've chosen not to build links to people who could help them learn, which is a, which I thought, I was angry about that. And I think the consequence, because of the consequences, I mean, we're, we're seeing now and we're going to increasingly see. Okay, so that's the first part, which is the strategy and the tactics of this specific bailout. But to go back to the broader question, which is like, you saw this rethinking of first principles on the right. Um, why didn't you see that on the left? Why didn't you see a thought collective emerge on the left to say, what did we get wrong? Um, why did it just boil down to Bernie Sanders wants Medicare for all? If there's a nuclear war, it would go back to, we need Medicare for all. And the centrists would be like, we need more moderates, right? If, if it doesn't matter, an asteroid's coming, we need Medicare for all. And we know we need more moderates. It's like, why was the debate so, so constipated? Why didn't you have a group of people who had, some of whom had positions of power, some of whom were intellectuals, some of whom were advocates and activists? Why didn't they come together and form a kind of thought collective so they would see the world in the same way? You saw a little bit of this on MMT, you saw a little bit of this and you know you saw pieces of it but broadly speaking there was not an ideological transformation of the democratic party or the left you know and so as a result it, to me it's like it's really confusing about like as to whether there really is a schism in the well, democratic party there's a schism it's just rooted in very very old conceptions of how the world yeah. works right so you have yeah. you have the the bernie folks and and to a lesser extent, the Warren folks who are clamoring for, you know, the sort of European style social democracy, which is based upon sort of older ideas of having a more, more government intervention in the economy, more redistribution. Uh, and then there's the modern Clintonian Democrats who have this neoliberal uh, version vision of the global economy. I think there is a division there. It's just not terribly modern and rooted in anything that has anything to do with how the modern economy works. Is, is, does that make sense? Yeah, th no, that's right. I think that that makes a lot. That makes sense. It's uh, it's like they, but you know that division of like so more social democracy versus um, you know versus kind of less social democracy it leaves out corporate power, right? It leaves out finance. It leaves out um, questions about like China. And, and there, are, there are like aesthetic nods to it, right? Like Bernie doesn't like private equity, right? And he goes to a hospital to protest it. And there's people that are like, I don't like too big to fail banks. But it's like, when push comes to shove, we have, you know, there wasn't, there just wasn't any, they like they were confronted with a, a, a confusing series of alphabet programs from the Fed and from Congress, which were not impossible to decipher. And frankly, you, they could just read your articles or read stuff Fine, that right? other people wrote. Okay. Or yeah, I, yeah I'm read, kidding. read yes, Katie's. Read Katie's. Um, they could just listen to Katie. Yeah. Um, but like, there are plenty of people that, that that could interpret this, and that it like they didn't. They didn't. They weren't there, and the reason they weren't there is because they're they that division, that old division about more or less social democracy, or more or less social welfare. I don't think it's social democracy, but, but take your point. Is so um, it assumes like that that idea of social democracy versus more neoliberalism 
European social democracy assumes that you've got Wall Street already taken care of, and it assumes American hegemony. Because when they talk about France and and Germany and all these countries, Denmark, that have, Denmark, all these social democratic programs, that was under the first of all, a lot of that was installed by Americans after World War II, like New Dealers. Second of all. All of those countries were living under the American military umbrella and the American control of high finance. A lot of them were financed by American, like Americans just decided after World War II, you know, and this was not total self-interest or altruism. It was a little bit of both. They were just like, we've already done through two world wars. Europe keeps causing world wars. So let's, let's stabilize Europe. And they did a bunch of stuff to stabilize Europe. And then, the, the, the generations that emerged in the 1970s and 80s and 90s, the ones that we're dealing with now, these old stagnant constipated debates, do not realize that all that stabilizing stuff was in power, was in place. Sorry, not in power. Also motivated by it was in place. anti-communism, right? Wasn't that like a big underlying part of it? Well, yeah. I mean, there's the Cold War. There were a lot of dynamics of the Cold War. Um, the, the New Dealers did not like fascism and they did not like communism yeah. because they did not like totalitarianism in general. And there were a lot of bad things that came out of the Cold War, don't get me wrong, but the point is, and like I think there's a lot of arguments that you could make both sides, you know, on, on whether it was a good strategy or not. But the point is, is you can't pretend like European social democracy existed in this virginal state, that European social welfare systems existed without aggressive American constraints yeah. on power and an aggressive American yeah. military posture. Right. It's a foreign policy pretend. issue also. Yeah. yeah. And they just pretend that that's the case. But Matt, how much of what you're talking about with the, the failure to address wall street as a, and the fundamental economic power structure, how, how much of that is a literacy, literacy question? Like I, you worked on Dodd-Frank. I remember during that talking to people who worked in the Hill saying, yeah, we want to do this, portion of the bill on derivatives clearing, but like we literally couldn't find anybody anywhere on the Hill who understood it. You know what I mean? So, you know, there's like three people who maybe work in one committee who kind of half know somebody who knows somebody. I mean, isn't that, isn't that part of the issue is that nobody, a lot of people just don't understand how private equity works, how, how all these different, how financial markets work, how the money market funds work. I mean, that was, an excuse issue. Te- that was an excuse 10 years ago. Okay. Right. But we've had 10 years to study this. Right. right. And, and, and you, you know, that means that if you were like, there are a lot of people who were, who were 24, 25, you know, in, in 2008 that are now 34, 35 and have had 10 years to look at these problems and understand these problems. So as a, we are a lot more literate in these, you know, programs, like we can say, Oh, the fed is doing the TALF thing again. Uh, and mm-hmm. I, I mean, like, you know, you, you, you're not, this isn't your first like massive bailout, right? So, you know, you're, you're, you and I are both, and you know, we're 10 years older. We've had like a lot of time to look at this. We've had 10 years of debate over monopoly, over private equity, over banking. And there are some details that are like, you know, that are new here, but like, it's not, um, it, this stuff is not a mystery anymore. And so like, certainly, you know, it was a choice it's a choice to pay attention to it or not. And I think that the counterpoint to what you're saying, and I, th- I take your point, is that the thought collective on the right has actually done that thinking. And that's right. one of the reasons why Rubio's small business lending program doesn't actually, like there are guardrails against private equity in there that they put in there because they understand private equity, right? And I'm not sure that those guardrails are going to hold. But the point is, is that like, 
they yeah, they've, I, I wrote about that last week. They're, they've been trying every which way to get at it, but that that was an interesting thing in your article because it, it there there was a moment where they went to Treasury, the the private equity funds, and they're like, hey, we need in on this bailout money, and they were kind of rebuffed. They've they've been rebuffed yeah. a few times, and that was I had it was described to me as a surprise. Well, let, let's let's get into the 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 new populist right article that you wrote because um, I, I thought it was really interesting on a couple of levels. I mean. Are we really talking about because they're looking at it almost from more of a nationalist perspective now, right? right? Like, what's what is it really in our in our long term national security to export all of our labor to China and to have the control over the economy? I mean, explain what, what the thesis of that piece a little bit to folks. Okay, so uh, that's just somebody um, who's breaking into my place. You might want to lock the door. Yeah, yeah. yeah no. It's fine. Yeah, <laughs> I like the whatever. confidence with which she carries herself, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, the right, you know, you, this new populist right uh, comes at the, the, they looked at, you know, I think three things that happened during the Bush years. And, and looking back at the Clinton years and the Obama years, which I think they, they saw some of the similar trends. So the first was the massive offshoring of industrial capacity to China which just destroyed um, a lot of these places that, that, uh, that, they, that these people came from. So I talked to one uh, right-wing editor at a right-wing news site who shall remain nameless, who told me, you know, look, I came from a town in, in, in Michigan and it was just destroyed by private equity, right? And she's very angry about it. And then saw no uh, pushback against that from the Obama administration. Um, and so it's kind of this interesting dynamic where it's like, you know, Bush, there, Obama had an opportunity to pull all of these people into his orbit, right? And he didn't. He pushed them out of that orbit. So Bush comes in, offshores a bunch of stuff to China. Then there's the war in Iraq, right, which a lot of them supported. And then, you know, later on, we're like, oh, actually, it turns out this is, this is a disaster. And then it was, uh, there were some others, it was just basic, you know, corruption and incompetence that I think the Bush administration was doing. Although now Bush is good because he paints, he has those cute photos. So, <laughs> so um, in, late, in the late sort of Bush era, uh, some of these people who were, were like, oh, you know, maybe, maybe these, this guy, um, you know, maybe, maybe we're going to realize that we screwed up. But it turns out that, um, you know, Mitt Romney, they put up Mitt Romney. They, they, and that's when a bunch of them realized, oh, wait a second, these guys are never going to let go. The never Trumpers, who are now the never Trumpers, the neoliberals in the Republican Party, are never going to let go. So that's when a lot of them eventually decided they'd get behind Trump because they were like, these guys are, the party has to be burned down. It is, it is, this is not the conservative movement that I thought I signed up for. Now, um, there are some, so, so they, you know, they've been watching China for 15 years. It was really like one of the animating factors here uh, as part of a political ph philosophical problem, like the WTO what Clinton did with NAFTA and the WTO to lock out any potential changes, democratic influence over, over our, over political economy. That was something that they really didn't like. So they paid attention to China and uh, because they paid attention to China and they paid attention to commerce and industry, they've taken a, um, and the, the stripping out of all of this social capital, the, the, how families have fallen apart, the, um, you know, the, the, the opioid epidemic, a lot of that stuff that's the, the collapse in, in commodity prices in rural America, a lot of the stuff that started on Obama's watch. Uh, these guys have been like, that's a huge problem and we need to address it. And so they, but they come at this as like 
populist conservatives. They're not liberals. They're not from the left. And so these, these guys are, they were also really angry at Bush's approach to immigration, which was much more about getting a lot of immigrants in and in their view, pushing down wages, which I think is, I think that's what immigration can do. Immigration can introduce additional workers and push down wages. It doesn't have to, but no. the, but the, but and the there way are ways that, to organize or, so it doesn't do that. Yeah. But the, but the a lot of the, movement. a lot of our immigration policies, particularly um, keeping immigrants in this uh, undocumented immigrants yeah. in this kind of netherworld is about reducing sure. wages, right? So there yeah. is a legitimate claim from the left that it, it's not fair and that that doesn't necessarily need to push down wages. But there's also a legitimate claim from the populist right that this is actually intended to undermine wages, right? The, 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 both of those are true. They're just different ways of seeing the same yeah. problem. And it's a different solution, right? Also, yeah. like and you can see, you can argue that it's it's you know, that the U.S. can't go around destabilizing these countries and then not let the people fleeing them into the country. But yes, you could also say at the same time, the way it's practiced now is often to undermine wages. Anyway, the point is, is that they, that they didn't like what Bush was doing on immigration because I think they perceived it as uh, both because of xenophobia and sort of jingoism bad, but also because for like legitimate reasons, they said, oh, this is just big business undermining wages, right? And and those those two things that ambiguity was like was there right. for for these guys. I I think that the just in terms of kind of the the way that the left responds to these things, I do think like for instance, if you point to the fact that you can point to the fact that Tucker Carlson is right on something without leg- endorsing him or legitimizing him, and I think that's a scary thing that we've seen. Um, where if you acknowledge that isn't it messed up that Tucker Carlson is the only place that'll like, you know, question the justification for s- going to Syria that you become then the Tucker Carlson apologist. So there's well, I mean, a real... he's also the only person who's done a, done features on television about the impact of pre- private equity on small towns. Right. So, I, and mean, not... I, I think that it undermines the left when we do that actually, because then we're seeding them. If we can't even touch that issue and we, and we can easily do this as the the left is so bad on this or liberals are so bad on this and the liberal media is so bad on this that we're letting Tucker Carlson be the only voice on this. That's how we can respond to it as opposed to just saying, oh, if you if you even point to that, you're a racist xenophobe. Yeah, I mean, I not to be like, well, this guy on Twitter once said to me, blah, but I'm going to use it anyway. This is Tom, Tom Friedman gets to write New York Times columns yeah. about taxi cab taxi drivers. drivers yeah. use, um, and, and starting with yeah. so. So I remember I was like talking about how shitty bankers were and I was like, bankers do this or that. And someone was like, well, honestly, you know, you say bankers, but we know that's code for Jews. <laughs> and I was like, then how do you actually talk about banking or finance if any criticism is code for Jews? Of course, you can argue that like that there is a racist edge to what like to any of these themes. Of course, there are racists like you. But it would be the same thing as saying, hey, anybody who was against the war in Iraq is racist because Pat Buchanan was against the war in Iraq. Like there's always a, you can always yeah. draw racism out of any, any moral claim, right? You can always pull. And it's so the, but the point here is that if you don't actually acknowledge that there are serious problems with how we have chosen to do globalization, if you don't acknowledge that there is rot at the core of wall street, at the core of Silicon Valley in a lot of academia, then you're le- then 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 the argument that these criticisms are done in bad faith is itself bad faith 
that's the problem. So you you have been getting getting to this. So you've been uh, you were one of the first people to talk. I think it was in 2011 about how uh, we made ourselves vulnerable to a future pandemic. Uh, you've been very outspoken for quite a while about the threat of uh, the virus, but you're arousing all this indignation on the on the internet. If you had to, who hates you most on the internet right now, and why? Uh, and what's that all about? And what, what what are some of these controversies about? Yeah, I mean, I I just uh, I would give. I, I, I wrote an article in 2011 on how um, our supply chains are really dangerous, but I basically took that from, from Barry Lynn, who wrote a book mm. on this in 2005 called The End of the Line, which was about multinational corporations. So there are other people that were on this earlier. It's not like some genius insight that I had. Like People noticed in the 1990s, hey, if we send a factory over there, we can't get the stuff over here if there's any closure of borders. So like, just to be clear, like I don't uh, this stuff was pretty obvious, right? It okay. just was like not noticed by, and supply chain people understood that it was a huge problem for, for years. At any rate, I, I appreciate the compliments. I just, um, the reason I'm mad is because this stuff was actually people who make things for a living knew that this was happening. Anyway, the um, people feel, I think find me really confusing on the, on like online, online, but just sort of in general in the democratic establishment because I mean, the, the, actually the people who really understand where I'm coming from are the, are the Trumpers. Like, part of the Trump movement, not the, like, there are white nationalists in the Trump movement. They don't, you know, they just think I'm like a, Jew. you know, a Jew. They, they, they're like, uh, you're a Jew, you're going to die in this, in the coming civil war. That's like the general, they're, they routinely use, threaten me with violence. So I think kind of put that on another level, although it is funny to be attacked as an anti-Semite and a Jew. Modern Twitter. So, but the Trumpers who are like this kind of populist types, they understand where I'm coming from and where I think some of us come from. And they were actually rooting for Bernie, not in bad faith, but because they don't like neoliberals in general. And they, they, thought, they thought, we had our rebellion in the Republican Party. It's not complete. We want you to have your rebellion in the Democratic Party because, you know, everybody, just like everybody kind of hates boomers, like everybody hates the, these, these neoliberals. On okay, the neolibs. Of, yeah, okay, neolibs, right? And um, so, so they were like, oh, I get it. Uh, I get where Matt's coming from. He doesn't like all of these social choices that were really problematic and goes into the details of, you know, the financiers and like trade policy and the, the deep political choices and wants the rebellion that we had. Uh, so, so they understood where I was coming from. And I think the people that hate me the most are the like Ezra Klein type uh, Vox, you know, sort of elite Vox types. The, the Pod Save America guys despise oh. me. Jay and Carney you're welcome here. Yeah, Jay Carney hates me. Um, this, the people that hate me the most are like the, the people that played the game of let's have reform but not be honest about the problems, right? Like we'll just pretend. It's like there's, there's sort of two different types of people when you have like a faculty scandal. Like the 65-year-old legendary professor, turns out he's been like harassing or assaulting students you know, graduate students, like, what do you do about him? Like some of the people in the faculty room are like, we need to, to expose this publicly, have a, bring in a law firm to show that this happened, fire him, make it a, a public, you know, send him to do a legal complaint. And some of the people are like, let's just let him retire, push him out and like never speak of it again. Right. And like, let's put in firm compliance policies going forward. And those are the two frames of how to understand a deep, rotten social uh, structure. And 
it's the people that are sitting there who want to cover up the rot and just move on and just do the reform without acknowledging that there were any problems, like the mistakes were made crowd. They're the ones that, that hate me the most because I'm the one who's like, there has to be a reckoning. We got to have a reckoning. We got to name names. You don't have to like, you don't have to like, you know, like people don't have to go to jail for this, but they have to acknowledge they did it. Right. Like I supported the war in Iraq and like, I can never not. You did? Wow. I did in 2002. That was my radicalization moment. I was like, well, all, if all the men in suits support it, then they must be right. Cause the men in suits are usually right about things. And then it turns out that I endorsed mass murder and that was a terrible thing to do. And I can't unendorse it, but, but I can remember that I did that. And I think it's really important for people to remember that they made terrible choices so that they learn from it and don't do it again. And I think that's like what we need is we need people to understand that, that they themselves made terrible choices and that they don't have to do that going forward. And so it's the people that don't want the reckoning. They are the ones that I think hate me the most. And is that, is that connected? I mean, there's also this idea that one shouldn't even flirt with, you know, ideas on the other side or acknowledge the legitimacy of other points of view. I mean, right. you, you're, you, you exist in this kind of gray area that just even being in is already problematic on, on the Democratic side. So, yeah, like just acknowledging that, like, you know, conservatives are people, right, with ideas and are not just a bunch of like Neanderthal racists. Um, not like, like I think they can be both, but I, but I do think that, well, that, that, that making certain ideas toxic by virtue of who support, whom support, who supports them. But well, I think actually that's an interesting point. And speaking, moving us away from the, the sort of populist right for a second, you know, one of the, I, I there's this wonderful um, TV series called Babylon Berlin. Oh, so good. Yeah. So good. So good. Right. One of the greatest parts of that series, it's, it's a, um, it's a detective series set in like 1929, 1930, 1931, Weimar, Germany. But one of the coolest things about it is that the Nazis are just people. They're just characters, right? They're not, um, you know, they're obviously like kind Cartoonishly, of- Cartoonishly, yeah. They're not cartoonish, right? They're just like lost young men, basically. Right. And so I think like that's that one of the things that the way that the left uses yes. the term racist is they don't use it as a way to describe somebody with a learned social attitude. They use it as a sort of way to describe an unperson, right? Right. And which, yeah, which then avoids that's, that's, how we actually work on it. Like if you care about right. racism, you have to describe it different ways. And this goes back to what Matt and I were saying earlier before we knew that Amo Bernie had dropped out, which is that um, part of electability is being able to speak to people who we may find to have unappealing, problematic ideas. And not only speak to them, but like if we don't speak to those people, if there's someone, if we don't have an alternative to Trump, then those people have nowhere to go and they just stay there. So if, you know, you take the Hillary Clinton uh, basket of deplorables attitude, you're actually enabling and empowering Trump. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think just on a, on a moral level, I just remember, you know, when uh, Deaton and Case did did that study of deaths of despair just showing that basically white uh, high school educated largely men but, but some women were just killing themselves yeah. at elevated rates you know it's just huge numbers of people in in america and i would talk about it sometimes and i just would get so much pushback from friends and then also just randos on the internet and, he, and I think there were actually some people who wrote in like new york magazine or whatever that were like well kind of you know good 
Good. It's good that yeah, these Trump supporters are dying. I hate that. And there was a there was a genocidal impulse behind some of the responses because it was it was upper class kind of liberal elites who thought and I don't think that they realized this, but like they were they were just kind of like, well, you know, maybe the country will sort of eventually like these people will not will some of them will die and then we can like win elections. And like I've seen that kind of attitude in D.C. Marcos Melitas. When you're talking about um, when you're talking about like what do we do about the fact that there's less economic opportunity in like West Virginia or certain rural areas? And I remember going to there were all these dumb seminars put on by some billionaire or some corporation on the future of work, and there were always these weird consultants there who would say things like, you know, well, we can't get Apple to set up a factory in West Virginia, so maybe we should just get everyone in West Virginia to move to where the jobs are, which is like ethnic cleansing. Right. And I brought this up into like right in 2017 at one of these events. I was like, that's kind of ethnic cleansing. And, you know, maybe this is why like the Trump people like don't like like liberals, because this they know that this is the kind of way that we think about policy, because these are influential policy people. And there were a few people that were like, yeah, that actually makes some sense. Maybe we shouldn't tell people that they have to move. Their entire communities have to move and get disrupted. And then, uh, but other people were like, well, that's just globalization. That's just the way competition works. So there's something really, it's not just that like as a tactical, strategic and electoral matter, you have to talk to people that you don't agree with. There's actually something really cruel about making someone else an unperson. Yeah, I agree. There's a moral aspect to it also. But what makes it so infuriating is that even people who don't see these people as humans are actually... If their biggest priority, which they often claim, is to defeat Trump and Trumpism by turning their backs on people and dehumanizing them, yeah, they're actually just refusing to engage in electoral politics. They're refusing to win. Right. I, I would actually say I would actually note that the, the the strategic problem is real. The technical problem is real. But I actually think that people who just throw around the term racist all the time, and I think there's there's a it's a useful term. In, in a lot of ways to describe racist behavior. But one of the interesting things you, you'll notice is that they also use people that are discriminated against as a moral shield and in turn make them unpeople. So like the Flint water crisis, like is a good example of just like a bunch of people saying, this is absolutely terrible. This is absolutely racist and not fixing it. Yeah. Right. And it's like, it's like, I saw Trump use emergency designations to build a wall and pull money from the military to do that. I didn't see Democrats choosing to do that to address the Flint water crisis. But like when you just, the Democrats want, or at least the left really loves to have victims that they can, they can use as sort of victims to hide behind. And it's like what they're doing is they're turning them into unpeople as well. What you're what you're talking about, Matt, kind of speaks to that whole thing about how uh, when you're asking, well, how are we going to talk about banks if that's if the, if the topic is inherently anti-Semitic? I, I remember having the same thought in 2016 and I was covering Trump's campaign. And just in a couple of articles, I mentioned, well, he's. He's bringing up all these themes about how the towns are devastated by these economic policies. And I'm interviewing people in crowds who used to be union members or their families were union members who used to vote Democratic. And now they're going to talk. They're going to vote for this guy. And I didn't even take a position. And I just said, this is happening. And I got all this blowback from people who were saying, you know, 
the the so-called white working class it's just racism there's you know you're you're mislabeling what's actually happening here um you know all of that is actually just a a mask for a white nationalist movement and the, and i felt like saying okay well some of those things are true but then how am i going to talk about the eco economic dislocation in these places and, and the choices these people are making if you can't even go there you know <laughs> like like i i felt like that was a problem in both the last cycle and this cycle with the Democrats and, and how they're and their inability to kind of talk to that kind of voter. I, I don't know. Am I, am I off on that? Or No, I think that's I think that's right. And I think it's really severe. And this is where I, I, I feel like this is why I'm like wondering about this left, this left populist world, whether it's real or not, because one of the things that I think, you know, you saw this kind of the squad emerge, right? Like AOC and Ayanna Presley and, and Ilhan and Rashida Tlaib, and they, um, they, they're, they have an economic framework that I agree with. Like they're generally speaking, they want to go after, you know, concentrated power. A lot of their policies are things that I like, um, particularly AOC, but they had a choice to, about what frame to take. And they, they picked the, um, they picked the woke frame. And I think that the woke frame really leaves out the ability to talk about people in a, in a coherent way, right? If you're always making, if you're making problems, if you're always looking for the, the victimization, like you need to find some sort of group, like socially determined group that's the victim and thus the morally appropriate group to talk about, then you can't actually talk about it, like inhibits your ability to talk about things as collective human problems. And like what you're saying is basically like white, young white men had serious problems in 2016 or even or older white men too. Um, and they were killing themselves. They were looking, they were lost. They were in conspiracy theories. Lifespans are declining. And this is a, this is a, a generally speaking in terms of socioeconomic groups, white men are more empowered than every other group. Straight white men are in, in America relative to those other socioeconomic groups. However, they also have unique problems because every socioeconomic group does have unique problems and those problems are real, including really high suicide rates, including like really high drug abuse rates, physical pain, um, alcohol dependency. These were real things and the, you know, devastated communities, which doesn't make it, doesn't make those problems happening in like among black people any less real but it does mean that you have to have a way to talk about those problems and you have to have a way to talk about them in those specific communities. Like you have to have a way to say white men have problems that we have to address. Right. And you have to be able to say that. And that those problems are, are um, not, it's not just that they themselves are bad. And I think that the, the frame that like complaints that you got when you were saying, talk to a lot of people in these communities who were upset, about what had happened and they were thinking of voting for Trump, the, the response can't be to make them unpeople. And that I think is the response that you were hearing. And that's, I think the response that we've been consistently hearing from the Democrats, I go into this in Goliath, right? This mm -hmm. comes out of the 1970s, right? Where, 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 um, I forget who it was, but, um, the guy, Robert Kennedy's campaign manager, who then led the, the, the party reforms in 1970 and actually then structured the way that George McGovern could take over the party. 
he was explicit. He wanted to get rid of the white working class out of the, and get rid of that out of the Democratic Party. He thought the white working class was, was a, a reactionary force and he wanted to expel them. And that was an explicit ideological goal of uh, Ken, uh, I think Ken Dutton, I think was mm-hmm. his guy. He later became, he's, he's like an amazing character. He started Earth Day or he had the idea for Earth Day. And then later on he became like a lobbyist for Chevron. But anyway, the, the, that was a strategy and, um, and it was an ideology. It was a way of shaping, you know, how we see the world, how we see justice. And I think we're dealing with that now. And so you have this problem where like it, it is, we have on the Democratic and on the left side, there is a real conflict about whether to talk about people as people or to talk about people solely as victims. And that's like a, that's a tension that I don't want to say we haven't resolved it. Unfortunately, I think we might've resolved it in favor of just talking to people only as victims. And that is a fundamentally tyrannical way to see the world. Can we, I just wanted a quick comment on the primary, what happened, what uh, went wrong and if it could have been avoided. What do you think? I mean, this is, this is like, well, you have a unique vantage point on, we, we were, we were just talking about Bernie uh, and what happened with his campaign and you know, I, I'm of the mind that that he didn't have an instinct for being aggressive towards uh, Biden to, uh, in the same way that he would have against Hillary Clinton and didn't really understand winning and losing uh, all that well. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm curious to hear what you think. But yeah, I mean, I talked about Warren, this before, obviously. Yeah, Warren, Warren, you know, the two credible candidates on the left were Warren and Bernie. Warren just ran a horrible campaign. You know, she had Joe Rose Bars, who was an Obama guy, and he just is terrible at branding. Uh, and, he, you know, he's really good at branding you if you're a, a fan, if billionaires like you. Um, so he was good at dealing with Obama, but like, uh, but he's just horrible for Warren. Um, and that's why the, the Golden Retriever thing was such a big part of her campaign. It was just embarrassing. Actually, you, you, got, you guys told, I first saw the big structural Bailey actually watching your podcast because you guys, you guys were like showing this, you know, I thought the Bailey thing was annoying, but then you actually showed this giant blow up of that, the giant inflatable Bailey. And I was, you were like, what the hell is that? I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe that's a thing. (laughs) It was just like, it was was like, Oh my God. (laughs) And then she went up and hugged it. It was like, this is super bizarre. Anyway, the, the, the campaign, that campaign was a disaster and, and it was really sad to watch for, for, but ultimately like Warren, you know, she just has bad political instincts uh, and bad political judgment. And Bernie, you know, Bernie's campaign did, I think he did a lot better than I expected. I did not think that he was going to do particularly well and he did. Uh, but at the end of the day, like Bernie was stuck between saying I'm a revolutionary who's going to overthrow the whole establishment and look at all of these policies that are super reasonable by any metric. And it's like, you can't, you have to pick like whether, you know, you have to have a coherent theory for why you're going to govern well. And he didn't have a coherent theory. His theory was I'm going to overthrow the entire political establishment and do, you know, in this giant political revolution and do things that are completely reasonable and not revolutionary at all. Right. And that, that's, that's just incoherent. So, you know, and then I, I, there are a lot of other problems. Like he is just has no killer instinct. 
um, he wants to be liked by Chuck Schumer and by like, you know, Joe Biden and all, like all the democratic elites. But like fundamentally it's in many ways, it's a lot like um, Obama who had that external brand as this incredible reformer, this guy who, you know, Washington says Washington's always making bad, bad mistakes. But then when he came to, you know, when he was in DC would, you know, had a very different uh, approach and like keeping those two worlds separate. I think Bernie, you know, I think Bernie did that too. And that's like, a, you can win elections like that. He didn't, it's harder to win elections if you don't have a coherent view of the world, but uh, you can't win elections and you can't govern that way if you, if you keep those two things sort of separate, unless you're just, you know, doing it for billionaires, then they're perfectly happy for that. Well, I mean, not to, not to detain you too much longer, but the, the, he did have a problem, right? Like if he had come out and said, I'm going to overthrow the system in this revolutionary way and impose revolutionary ideas that might've been difficult electorally to make, to make that work. Right. Like, I mean, there is a way that he cynically could have uh, stayed in both lands at the same time. If he had had a better strategy for winning over more voters, it seems to me, if he had like an ulterior motive to actually enact revolutionary change, I'm just thinking out loud that that would have been a difficult thing to do with, with, I think you and I've talked about this. Democratic well, voters if, if are had, who they are. You know, I mean, they right. would, it would have been difficult to get them there. I think. If he had appealed to the like, so so we did have a revolution here. It's called the American Revolution, right? And it was a radical revolution. There were there were a lot of you know every revolution is weird and has lots of trends and lots of influences. And the American Revolution certainly has its egalitarian, radical egalitarian aspects. Also has its very in, inegalitarian aspects. But like, if he had said, you know, we need an American revolution, right? And like every fucking truck commercial says that. Like, you know, if he had said, we need an American revolution, you know, what he said with FDR was, I think, really powerful when he was like, you know, that, you know, when he did give a speech on democratic socialism and said, this is just what FDR meant, um, which was incoherent because that's not actually what democratic socialism is. But he tried to move there. If he had anchored his... Uh, a, appeal to common sense in an American context and said, you know, we've had these kinds of um, really significant changes before. If he had used American rhetoric uh, and then said, you know, a lot of this is a revolution for common sense. You know, Thomas Paine's pamphlet was named common sense, right? I right. mean, that's, if he had used that frame, it, it, yeah, I think he could have taken up both lanes, but the, the weird, like, use of of sort of like the the he he got a little more woke this time which i think is like which is uh and i i don't mean by woke i don't mean supportive of racial justice i actually think wokeness is not supportive of racial justice i think wokeness is using the language of racial justice to create an as an in-group signaling mechanism i think it's a form of aristocracy Right. Yeah, I mean, but I think it's sir- wo- the woke thing is when you use that to undermine I, can, I think it's when you use that stuff to undermine economic justice, which he didn't do. I mean, just in terms of the diagnosis, not defending Bernie, but like, I just don't think incoherence is something that ever, I don't think people think of it as, oh, that's politically incoherent. Um, He's not consistent. I think it was more the way he ran. Like, I don't think people over it, you know, have the same intellectualizing academic analysis of it. He he did lose a whole bunch of voters to the Biden Right. People. And those are exactly the voters who don't respond terribly well to that kind of language, even if they don't understand the ideas behind it. 
Um, they're older. They're more traditional. They don't really get it. Um, they find it exclusionary. I mean, you, you'll interview these people and, and they have a variety of responses to them that are all negative. And I think Bernie kind of tiptoed around it last time and, and didn't this time, especially, especially in the summer last year. And also, I mean, like the way that Biden talked about race is way more honest than the way that like the Bernie campaign, leaving Bernie aside, the Bernie campaign talked about race. And that's, you know, he would be like, I was a lifeguard at the pool and these black kids would come up to me and pick at the blonde, you know, hair on my legs and, Golden you know, told, yeah. told stories about, what was that guy? Corn uh, pop. Corn, corn pop. pop. Like those were real stories. Like that was not like made up, like that was real. And it sounded weird to me, but it was like a generational weirdness. But like, and Bernie, you know, had the language of some language of racial justice in his campaign did. And black voters went entirely to Biden. Older right? like ones. Overwhelmed. No, no. Black voters went to Biden. Like younger ones didn't vote or um, largely went to Biden. And then at, the, at certain very narrow demographics, like really young ones, there was, it was more even, but at every level, like you can look at a black vote at every level, a black voter of a similar demographic to a white voter in terms of age, socioeconomic status was about 10 points more likely to go for Biden than Bernie. And there was an age split, but like the, the racial justice frame of, of Bernie was just not appealing to black voters. And I, and I think that that's something that you have to acknowledge, like that racial justice language doesn't actually work. It doesn't actually appeal to people. That's I mean, I feel like a lot of that, what you're talking about has to do with language. I mean, for, for yeah. the, when I wrote, I can't breathe, one of the books, one of the stats that I found that was really interesting is that the average black person has eight white friends and the average white person has less than one black friend. Mm. Uh, and there's a, there's a, thing about language, right? Like the, when you use that academic university yeah. language to talk about race, it's, it's typically, that's, that's the way people who don't have any exposure to uh, the black community, that's the way they talk. And so when you, when, when, I, and I've heard this in, at campaign appearances, talking to black voters, like that kind of language to them is just a signal. This is a person who doesn't know what my, my life is like. You know, whereas Biden is a is a familiar character. I mean, I'm not saying that they, that it's that it's one is better than the other. It's just that it, it's a it's an issue of familiarity for for voters. Like they're familiar with certain types, and this is something that's been true with um, in past elections. It's one of the reasons that Bill Clinton did well with black voters. Like they, they black voters felt like they knew people like that uh, who talk like that. I guess I just don't think it's that causal. So I just don't, I'm not saying you guys are wrong in your critique. I just don't think we can isolate that as some, as, as one of the big causes of, of, of Sanders. That well, no, I mean, I'm not billions of dollars against Sanders. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, there are a lot, yeah. lot of causes that for like, like is, you know, this has been a problem for decades. This is Israel, by the way. Issue. Matt, we've kept you on for so <laughs> Sorry, long. Yeah. Thank, yeah. thank you so much. And uh, we really appreciate your coming on and keep at it. And we, you and I should talk sometime about the, the, the private equity thing. And Yeah, no, that's that's going to that's a, amazing. So, yeah. yeah excellent. Um, all right. Talk to you guys later. All right. Take care. Bye. Well, that was great. Yeah. Did you learn something today? A lot. So much. I can't even, I don't want to, it would be offensive for me to even begin to say what I learned because there was so much that it would actually be insulting. Um, that was great. I think he was, he's, he's, he's really interesting and um, he's looking at problems from a different point of view, which is, which is really refreshing because it's just 
uh, I'm so tired of everybody being on brand about everything. So uh, that was, that was really cool. Anyway, well, uh, we're, we're going to have lots of uh, stuff to get to next week and the world is changing at light speed and, uh, lots of stuff to get to with the bailout and the virus response. And, um, we were a little bit uh, derailed today because of the, the amazing, uh, shocking news that Bernie had dropped out, which you can still see on Katie's faces. St. Bernard. I don't, St. Bernard should have told us so we would have known what to tape today. He should have, right. This show talks about him more than almost any other one. So he really, his people should have reached out just an example Mm -hmm. of decisions like that responsible for the loss. Right. So we'll get into more of that next week. In the the meantime, buy merch. Look, you don't have anything else to do. Uh, and, and in fact, look, look, some real economic advice. We're about to head into an extreme inflationary environment. So the smart thing to do is just buy stuff. Stock you know, up on, on, yeah. Don't pay it on debt. Go out and buy a car. Buy a, buy a stupid car. Buy, buy like a, a, fa- a fast, irrational car uh, that's too expensive. But especially buy lots of consumer products. And you might as well just buy mugs and T-shirts from us. And uh, bags with inside pockets. And bags with inside pockets. They're only going to rise in value in this uh, in, the, in the future uh, economic environment. Uh, and uh, you should rate and re- review us, listen to us wherever you can uh, listen to podcasts. So thanks for it. And we'll see you next week. Michael Toscano, hoping you'll join me on the First Light Podcast. We get to the heart of the event shaping our world as our correspondents check in and we talk with newsmakers and people who can take us behind the headlines. The First Light Podcast, wherever you get podcasts.